Hello and welcome to a special interview episode of Adult Music. Tonight, we've got a real treat talking with the great alto saxophonist Rudresh Mahantapa. Yeah, he's um, a, you know, a favorite of ours. He certainly came to our attention um, years ago when we heard the Bird Calls album. This is in 2015. I remember sitting on your sofa listening yeah. to this album and just being completely knocked out. Yeah. I think I even remember the beer I was drinking. <laughs> yeah, we had to uh, <laughs> pause to digest all that we heard and probably ate that day. I, th I think it took a few years for me to digest that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Rudresh has got an upcoming debut gig at Smoke Jazz Club in New York, uh, Thursday to Sunday, August 25th to 28th. So anyone who can get down to New York, you're in for a great evening of music there. It's a Charlie Parker celebration, building on some of the ideas from The Bird Calls uh, recording uh, with his trio that he's working with now. Well, it's going to be mostly the he said the hero trio album because it's a it's a trio. There's no piano. That's right. going to change things quite a bit. So it should be really exciting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this wonderful interview with Rudresh Mahantapa. Rudresh, thanks so much for joining us here on Adult Music. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And this is a real pleasure for us. Um, it's interesting yeah. too because in our last episode we were just talking about you. We had discussed uh, Michael Deese's new release, uh, "Best Next Thing." Oh man, that's a wow, that's a great record, man. It's Michael. a great record. Ooh, he's scary, scary trombone player. The sort of standout track for us was his uh, "Horse Trading," which was this like killer tempo, you know, kind of bluesy uh, number. Then you solo first on that, and uh, it, it's one of your kind of really from outer space solos that uh, you know you go <laughs> wild on. Well, I got to check it out. I didn't listen to the album. You know, you play on these albums and then you don't listen to them. So I got to check it out. Anyway, I once heard uh, a description of a David Liebman solo as an artful strangulation of the saxophone. <laughs> That's kind of the impression I got there. But then Dees had to come up and solo after you uh, at that tempo. And uh, man, he must have uh, burnt up all the lube on that slide. He's an amazing player. He really is. He's a monster. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. He's also a great saxophonist. Did you know that? I saw on his Facebook, he's doing some videos with uh, sax, too. Uh, just a little clip yeah, I saw. Yeah, and he's a good bass player, too. He's, oh, he's wow. just an amazing musician. Yeah, yeah. wow. Really exciting. He's something else. Good compositions. So we had kind of, you know, heard you playing back in the earlier 2000s with uh, VJ Iyer and other uh, things. But I think the first time Mike and I, we heard you together was uh, with Bird Calls. Uh, Mike was over at my house. And uh, we I remember put it on, this, yeah. yeah, and listened to it together. And it made like, a big impression. <laughs> yeah, wow. Uh, we had to take a break after that just to sort of, uh, you know, figure out um, what we heard. So that was really exciting. And this whole kind of concept of that you took little excerpts from, you know, Charlie Parker's compositions and solos, and then built something really original and new on that. It was really thrilling. And then we were excited to hear the uh, Hero Tribute also, uh, 2020. And then you're down to a chordless trio format. And right. that was interesting. Of course, you have more harmonic freedom, but I think you have a lot of that all the time. But the extra space and the way you filled it was really interesting there. How do you find going from the quintet to the trio now? Is there any other kind of uh, insights or feelings you've gotten from that? Well, you know, it's funny because I started... I always, I always liked the trio. I always liked playing trio when I was in college. I thought that, you know, that was it. Like I didn't need a, I didn't want any chordal instruments. I didn't want piano. I didn't want guitar. Um, 
So it's always funny to me that it took this long to actually make a trio album. <laughs> you know, I, think, right. I think my very first album, which is out of print and difficult to find, uh, there are a few trio tracks on there. But so I, I guess that's to say that it feels very natural. Uh, in a lot of ways, the quintet was different for me because you know it's very rare that I play with another horn player. You know, there's mm-hmm. this front line, there's an interaction with another horn player. The only other person I've done that with really besides Adam O'Farrell is Steve Lehman, who's also a great alto player. We used to have a band together. But the trio, it, it, just, it has this flexibility and just this malleability that's, that's, very, that's very special, especially considering that it's with Francois Moutin, Rudy Royston, you know, mm-hmm. two people I've been playing with for really over 20 years so you know we have this special connection that's um kind of undeniable so i don't know i i just regardless of what sort of ensemble what sort of instrumentation what the mission and message of the project is i i feel like you know i'm always me and i'm always trying to express you know my personality and you know the compositions or the instrumentation is definitely informing that but i i'm the constant and it's that's not really going to change you know what i mean right yeah. The other interesting thing going from the Charlie Parker inspiration is all the other kind of things you picked up on for a hero tribute, uh, a Keith Jarrett tune without piano. <laughs> right, uh, exactly. Yeah, that's one of my group, favorite yeah. tunes. In um, fact, uh, the wind is the wind up. Yeah, anyone who wants to listen to that, Stevie Wonder and uh, the Johnny Cash really knocked me out. You know, that was a Ring lot of fire, fun yeah. too. And then the follow up, the EP you did this year with uh, Animal Crossing. Uh, you've got uh, <laughs> the video game too uh, there, which right. a lot of people could identify with. Pat Metheny, Chuck Mangione, coming from upstate New York. You know that was a name I grew up with, oh, and then George Michael too. Right, that was a lot of fun because you could play around with the groove, and everyone gets into the groove. But then you did kind of like a giant steps thing with the harmony in there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This, uh, this, uh, <laughs> and again, it being trio, I feel like we can kind of snake in and out of these things in, in a very subtle way that, that maybe is not possible when there's a chordal instrument. And there's this high level of sensitivity that, you know, Francois can go with me or he can lay it down. Um, but the, I guess, kind of the sonic density stays the same, which kind of maybe gives us more flexibility in other ways. Right. And Rudy Royston, he's such a, whenever I think of his playing, the word finesse comes to my mind because he's he can do a lot with a little or he can also really whip it up and you get all sorts of feels from him and he adjusts to a, a real variety of ensembles we listen to lots of positone releases and uh, he seems to fit in any setting uh, really seamlessly yeah for sure he can, he can do a lot of things um it's funny I, I think there were some gigs he had with me that were right after some gigs he did with bill frizzell and the project mm. with Frizzell and Thomas Morgan is this very quiet, understated, kind of dreamy thing. And then, right. you know, the next day he was, just like, you know, he had to hit hard with me. So it, it was pretty hilarious because it, it was such a, a 180. But he plays beautifully, you know, in any situation. You know, Rudy came up playing with Ron Miles, the great trumpet player, when, when he was very young. Um, you know, we're all Colorado guys. We're all, you know, kind of born in the early 70s, grew up in Colorado. And and Ron's projects had a, a really wide scope from being, you know, very quiet to, mm-hmm. uh, to being very bashy. And, and Rudy, I think from 
a young age, you know, was embracing that that sort of uh, wide breadth of, of sound and scope that I think it's kind of natural to him in a way that it might not be to others, mainly because of playing with Ron. Right. So you've got all these different influences, you know, for the tune composing. But now the chance that we get to talk to you today, it's back to Charlie Parker yeah. uh, for your gig coming up at uh, Smoke Jazz Club. So this is your first performance that's going to be your debut right yeah it's my first it's my first show at smoke that's for sure and it's also my first time playing in new york and like since the early 2019 okay um obviously the pandemic put the kibosh on some things but you know the hero trio was actually supposed to play in may of 2020 and um so so playing in new york got very delayed so right you know i'm excited to go out there and hit and to, to have four nights in a row is really going to be fun so Charlie Parker's birthday, it's the night after, it's August 29th, right? So it was right. born in 1920. And Smoke, uh, they had the Bird at 100 release with Vincent Herring, Bobby Watson, and Gary Bartz, uh, 2019, the year before. And now you're going to be there with this as a Charlie Parker celebration uh, theme, right? Right. So it kind of informally so. I mean, we're not going to play any music from Bird Calls because that doesn't really work as a trio, but, but we're going to play some Charlie Parker tunes kind of rearranged um, and standards that he loved to play, you know, like stuff like I'll remember April and, you know, um, I think standards that he's very much tied to. And just the fact that, you know, a lot of what Charlie Parker's MO was, was taking, well, you know, we think of standards, we talk about standards in the American songbook, but but those were all pop tunes at the time, right? right. That would, there wasn't, <laughs> they weren't this historical thing. They were very current. And I think, you know, in that spirit, you know, I think playing the theme from Animal Crossing or playing a George Michael tune, or, you know, I think that's very much in the spirit of, of what Charlie Parker was doing back then. And right. I, I, I think it's important to keep that in our, you know, in our in our view, in our in our purview as jazz musicians. Right. The spirit rather than just the copying the form or something sure exactly just i think you know he gave us a lot musically um but i think his at his artistic attitude and and his vision are, are just as important as the things that he played you know right i think that's that's kind of 50 percent of of his gifts to us i think that 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 we don't necessarily talk about in you know in academia you know or when right. we're studying charlie parker we don't we don't talk about the the vibe and 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 the spirit we talk about what he played over d minor seven you know so right. he had to balance that out one of the things i've heard you mention about his playing that doesn't get talked about a lot but i also notice in uh, your playing is his phrasing and ability to you know start a phrase almost anywhere it's different a lot of uh, you know musicians i think we're like uh, boxers who need to be set before they can throw a punch and there's a few boxers who can punch sort of while they're moving back or whatnot and when i listen to charlie parker again and i hear it in your playing and in you know some players that uh, phrases can start in odd places in solos and then be connected in new and interesting ways and i think at that time he was really innovative in starting uh, different ways of uh, phrasing. Yeah, definitely, for sure. And I, I'm very flattered <laughs> uh, that that you say that about my playing. That's something I've definitely thought about because, you know, as, as human beings, we, you know, the way we speak, we're, we're always placing things in, 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 different, in different sorts of cadences, right? So I really think that music 
should reflect that. And and Charlie Parker in particular, you, there's always a feeling that he's talking to you. You know, it, it's not, it has this, e- even if you've heard one of his solos a hundred times, it has this very spontaneous quality. And I think, uh, I think comedians have that. I think great comedians have that, that sort of timing. Right. Um, and I think, you know, great extemporaneous speakers have that, have that ability and, and trying to kind of equate, you know, music and speech and the way we talk, I think that actually kind of humanizes what we're doing instead of it being this, this set sort of thing. And we always start our phrase on the, on the upbeat of one and we end here, you know, because right. no one really thinks like that or talks like that. So I'm not really sure that we should play like that. Exactly. I've got some more uh, questions about language and music for you later. But with this gig also, you've got a different bass player here, right? Harish Raghavan? Yeah, right. I've been wanting to play with Harish for a while. We've known each other for many years. He's a he's a bit younger than me, but he's really, really great. And he's, you know, playing with lots of great players. So this was a good opportunity. Francois was uh Francois is kind of split between here and, and Europe with a lot of his work and you know, he wasn't around for this and I saw it as an opportunity to play with someone else. Right. I see he's got a new album, or just came out at the end of uh, July. That's on our list of things to listen to, too. Yeah, and it's on the same label. It's the same British label, Whirlwind, that I've been right. working with. Yeah, and you know, I think he had some gigs coming up with Charles Lloyd, and you know, he's played a lot with Ambrose Ek and Musare. One time we were on a double bill in Warsaw together, and he was playing with Kurt Elling. That was like you know ten years mm-hmm. ago. He's he's just done a lot of stuff. He's very versatile, and he has a really big sound, and he has a very wide beat. That's I think is going to be particularly fun in a trio setting with Rudy. That's very really cool. So yeah. anyone in the New York area, if you can, get down to Smoke Jazz Club, August 25th to 28th. And we're going to hear, sounds like a little bit of Charlie Parker inspiration, but uh, lots of other sort of things with this trio. That'd be great. I wish we were in New York, but we're too far yeah. <laughs> in Japan <laughs> to go. Most important question. Are you going to wear the superhero outfits? <laughs> Oh, man. You know, we've been threatening to wear them for quite a while. Uh, You know, when we played in Europe, I meant to bring the capes at least, but then I I, I forgot them while I was packing. But one of these days we're going to do it. I don't I don't think it's going to be this time, but. But, so are you the owner of all of the um, <laughs> all of the the costumes? Or I I am, and I, oh. I was uh, I was amazed that the uh, that the guys were willing. You know, when I brought up the idea, I was like, you know, we're gonna dress like superheroes, and I'm gonna you know buy all this clothes that that they were actually down to do it. I guess they they trusted me. <laughs> yeah, they look great. And on the uh, what we're talking about, just for listeners, is on the Hero Trio album. There's a photo of um, uh, Rudresh with uh, Francois Mouton and Rudy Royston in in capes and and really um shiny pants looking and masks looking really <laughs> shiny uh, pants, yeah. superhero like <laughs> well, you know the out. funny thing it's it's mm. very very difficult to find superhero you know uh clothing that's not branded you know that doesn't have you know marvel or dc on it so right. it actually took a good bit of work to put to put those outfits together it's funny oh, yeah wow. and i have to say also i think rudy rudy after asked me if he could keep the gold pants <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Wonder where else he's going to wear them to. <laughs> he, exactly. he looks good in them, I have to say. Yeah. He does. He does. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're about the same age, Rudresh. And uh, I know you mentioned you grew up in the 80s like me, and you had a lot of sort of soul and jazz rock inspiration. David Svanborn, Brecker Brothers. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I was listening to this stuff too. But, you know, this is pre-internet when we grew up. Now you can just go online yeah. and, and find all these things uh, to listen to. So... 
I got into pre-bebop and post-bop music by listening to college radio and then going to the local library and borrowing vinyl. I've seen you mention the influence of your brother. How did you get into more traditional jazz growing up in Colorado? That was mainly through my teacher. I had a really great uh, saxophone teacher who was actually a colleague of Ron, fr- colleague and friend of Ron Miles, used to play with him mm. all the time. This guy named Mark Harris. He was my teacher from when I started playing in fourth grade all the way till I left for college. And he just turned me on to a lot of different music. Uh, I remember even just that first year studying with him, you know, we were listening to Paul, this Paul Desmond plays the music of Simon and Garfunkel, I think that was on that was oh, wow. on the cassette deck, and <laughs> and Brecker Brothers' Heavy Metal Bebop, some Yellow Jackets albums. Also, the father of my best friend was kind of an amateur jazz musician, and and he turned me on to Grover Washington. So that was my entry point into music that had saxophone that was dealing with improvisation, and then I kind of worked backwards and. Then it was, you know, it went kind of went from Grover Washington to Charlie Parker. I had this book, there's this famous book of Charlie Parker transcriptions called The Omni Book uh, that a lot of people have, a lot right. of musicians have. And I remember being at, uh, there used to be a record store chain called Musicland. That I would remember be in a that, lot of right? malls. Yeah. And I remember being at Musicland and I picked up this double LP of, of Charlie Parker's The Savoy Recordings and I turned it over and I saw that almost all of those tunes uh, were in the Omni book. So that's when I kind of sat down. It was amazing to me to be able to hear those solos and, and, and see it also, see the, right. the notes flying by. And, you know, I think after hearing Charlie Parker, I was kind of kind of hooked. Um, you know, I had a band in ninth grade that would, was trying to, you know, play bird tunes, butchering bird tunes, I should say. <laughs> but... Uh, oh. You know, start so that was kind yeah. of my entry. So it, for me, it was like working backwards. I started with the jazz rock, soul, fusion stuff, and then went to Bird, and then kind of worked my way forward uh, slowly. But again, going back to my teacher, you know, he he was an eclectic musician himself. He, he, you know, I would go see him play one night. It might be with a big band. Another night might be an Afro pop band. You know, another might be, you know, two saxophones and a drummer, you know, going crazy. Like, so from very early on, there was no sense of any genre being bad or any kind of subgenre of jazz being invalid. Like, it was more about stuff being played well. And, and I, I didn't know the word at the time, but I think ultimately, you know, music that was played with integrity. So, right. so and he would always bring over a few LPs every week and it was always you know just a wide variety of stuff it would be you know Stravinsky and Yes and Sidney Bechet maybe and then you know the <laughs> next week you know it it might be Ornette and and Bach and um you know something else I don't know you know so I was listening to all of this music at the same time it actually wasn't until I went to college that I really heard people talk about hard bop and bebop and avant-garde like those are words I didn't really even Maybe if I'd heard them before, I'd, I didn't really take them seriously because even when I was in high school, you know, Ornette was as great as as Bird for me and they were, you know, peas in a pod. I didn't think of one being out and the other being straight ahead or right. I just, you know, so, you know, I've had to learn that since, but, you know, <laughs> what, you know what that lingo is, but, mm. but I, 
I firmly, you know, my aesthetic and, and my beliefs are, are very much against all of that. So so I have to thank Mark Harris, my, my teacher, for a lot of my perspective. Right. That seems to have right. influenced your concept of being able to still mix all these influences of different genres and sort of make them seem like, oh, of course. Yeah, definitely. And and, and the idea of trying to be a, a unique musical personality that, but that's still evolving too, you know, that you're not satisfied and not set and also not trying to copy anybody else, you know, all right. of those things kind of working together. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about is uh, ethnic influences. You have mentioned that, uh, you know, you grew up, you weren't exposed much to uh, Indian music, uh, despite, you know, being Indian American, but there were certain expectations uh, as, oh, an Indian American jazz musician, you know, sort of put upon you or suggested. But Absolutely, later yeah. on, you actually informally went to India to study Indian music with uh, Carnatic saxophone playing and... Uh, also, this other recording you did that uh, I'm still trying to get my head wrapped around, I've heard it a couple of times, is this uh, Korean shamanistic music from uh, Mudang wow. Rock. Uh, that is really oh, yeah. kind of something interesting to listen to. Now, I think, uh, you know, in jazz since the 60s and then even in pop music with the Beatles, that sort of Indian music coming into all the modal things is sort of in people's consciousness since that time. How do you feel about uh, Indian music and these other kind of ethnic explorations now? Has it just become sort of part of your sound as like the sort of harmonic uh, toolkit that you might go into something that you've absorbed from that? Yeah, I think at this point, it's it's part of my musical DNA. Like, you know, I don't really think about it, but I think I, I also did go through a period of of you know explicitly trying to you know work on these things and and express them you know i think it's kind of like when you're when you're trying to you know learn a new word or or learn a new language you you do these kind of very academic things and then they start feeling natural and i feel like that's essentially what i did with the with the concepts of indian music that i was interested in but you know it was all coming from a place of trying to express what it means to be Indian American. I mean, we didn't really have many role models. Um, right. I mean, I think my generation and maybe one generation older are, are kind of like the first Indian Americans, right? You know, the or at least in critical mass. So the idea of expressing this identity and, and or, or trying to figure out what the identity is, at least for me, and, and, and then expressing it. So I guess that's to say that thinking about ways where Indian music can conceptually commingle with jazz is wasn't coming from a, a place of as much of an aesthetic place initially as it was as this kind of a, a, a burning way of trying to express hybridity the hybridity that was in me you know burning in me every second of every day in, in positive ways and in confusing ways as well you know right. I always used to say that you know in some ways, the music was this happy byproduct of me just trying to get to know myself. <laughs> you know, Interesting. Like, it maybe wasn't even the intention in some cases, you know. Right. One of the things we've, um, or I've tried to do picking music for the podcast we talk about is with streaming now, you can hear releases from all around the world. And I've tried to you know, keep it as international as possible and found these really thriving jazz scenes around the world in Italy, Scandinavia, uh, surprisingly, in Israel too, and in Greece. Don't forget, yeah, in <laughs> Greece, big fans uh, of ours. 
<laughs> but one of the cool things is I'm finding they're all bringing some part of their sort of native culture, the sounds that were around them, whether it's uh, interesting meters and feels or different kind of modal scales into the music. And it makes it really interesting. And, you know, as someone used to normally hearing uh, traditional American mm -hmm. jazz, I have to go back and listen a lot and say, oh, what is that? And that's kind of a scale I've never heard before and like that. But I find it uh, really interesting. Uh, what do you think is the next kind of frontier with jazz absorbing? I always see jazz as a sponge. It's taken in lots of different styles of music. Do you see any other kind of new elements or ethnic influences making a big contribution? The, nothing really comes to mind. I mean, I, I, the, the, the frontier I see is more with, you know, electronics and, and programming and, you know, sonic stuff. And yeah, I think there's so much that's, that's hasn't been tapped there. I see that, you know, people that are really truly improvising and developing vocabulary with some sort of electronic interface, I think. But, but as far as cultural influence, you know, I think there's actually so much of it. I can't imagine there being, you know, there, there being anything new. I mean, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine, and you know, I did that album Kinsman that came out in in two thousand eight with with Kadri Gopalnath, with the Carnatic saxophonist, and and at that time it was it was so unique. There wasn't really anything like it. And what we were talking about was if I were to do that project now, I think it would just going kind to of go into an ether of. <laughs> Lots of other projects like that, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, there is this idea of uh, some sort of global citizenship, and and the fact that we have access to all this information, all this music from all over the world, literally, you know, in the palm of our hand on our phone, is is really remarkable. I do want to say though that I think we should draw a distinction between jazz and and improvised music. I mean, I think there is there's a lot of great improvised music happening. But there's music that's improvised music that's being called jazz that doesn't necessarily have a tie to the African American experience. That doesn't. It is not tied to Charlie Parker. It, it's it's people that don't haven't studied bebop and you know right. they haven't studied Coltrane. They haven't studied Duke Ellington, and um, so it gets a little bit funny. I, you know, jazz gets is the label we use for a lot of this music, but I but I think. I don't think we should. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? right. It's that question of authenticity that comes up, right? Right, exactly. One interesting thing we found uh, with this Scandinavian jazz, a lot of it is stereotyped as sort of being non-swinging, sort of cold sounding. And there is music like that, that I would say probably doesn't tie much to yeah. uh, bebop. <laughs> and you know post-bop music however we found some really hard swinging scandinavians there's this drummer snore kirk and he sort of plays in more of a swing an earlier idiom and this fabulous uh, trumpet player tobias wickland who's sort of going back to more armstrong inspired things while infusing lots of other interesting modern elements so i kind of get inspired to see international jazz still maintaining some earlier elements of American music that most right. Americans have forgotten, you know, only jazz yeah, fans right, remember. Sure. Well, I think Jan Garbarek is a great example of, you know, a saxophonist who was, you know, a musician that was very much expressing his environment and his roots, but but you can definitely hear Coltrane in, in what he's doing, you know, you can hear the, the history of, of jazz. I think 
and he's been such a force. He has influenced, you know, a, a huge sector of the Nordic jazz scene. So, you know, I think there is a lot of authenticity out there. Um, I think it's it's more like I remember doing it a, a workshop at a conservatory in Norway, and um, you know, and the students they just wanted to play free, you know, and they they didn't they couldn't really play on a blues or a standard, and so I was you know I had to kind of just understand and appreciate that that they were dealing with improvised music and it probably shouldn't be called jazz right and and once you accept that then you know you can do interesting things but it's not like that that i have an agenda but i think it's important to make the distinction sure you know anders mogensen i don't know if you know anders mogensen he's a killing super swinging drummer from from copenhagen he's one of the kind of the top call guys in the the danish scene so you know these guys are out there for sure yeah Mm. I'm, let me ask. I'm really curious about um, how you build a how how you build a solo. When you when I listen to you, I, I kind of get the impression. You know, all these notes are going by so fast. I almost feel like I'm uh, uh, Keanu Reeves in the Matrix. You know, learning kung fu in three seconds. You know, because they, they jack them <laughs> into. The, I, f- I feel like all this information is just going directly into my brain. I can't really uh, process it. How much of that is? is improvised how much of it is planned out beforehand what's in there well none of it is planned out beforehand i mean right. I'm, I'm you know i have my 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 language as an improviser and the things that i've worked on and things that i've studied and um but i'm really just trying to react to my environment i'm trying to react to the musicians around me i'm trying to make sure that what I'm playing is actually related to, you know, to the song and, and right. the structure and, and not just a set of chords or, you know, a, a, some sort of framework that it's actually related to a song, that it's kind of a continuation of that. Um, I see, yeah. You know, and I think, you know, it's the same thing again. You know, I, I've worked on a lot of stuff, but I, I usually am, you know, a big proponent of forgetting about it when when you're actually up there playing with people and right. um and and trying to interact and really trying not to force anything you know because i feel mm-hmm. like i've i've been blessed to play and, and still play with lots of great musicians that you know they they're feeding me information all the time so i should listen <laughs> keep my ears open all right one thing i want to ask you about you made a recording in 2004 uh mother tongue mm-hmm. and this was based around recordings of different Indian languages, right? So one of the things that for my uh, work-related research has been a relationship of music and language, more specifically related to uh, language acquisition. And there's some interesting research that's been done and theories in that area. MRI scans show in the brain that music and language are activating the same centers in the brain. And there are some evolutionary theories that think language and music uh, you know, developed uh, in humans sort of together. And of course, music has syntax, but it doesn't have exact semantics like language to express a logical proposition. Uh, however, it can express sort of shared you know, emotional responses. And we can agree that this makes people feel sad or happy. Um, sure. So I'm wondering... In your experience, I know you, you have children as well, right? Yes. Watching your your children grow up and learn language and maybe music in the home and you, in your work as a teacher, and then also related to this interesting recording of building music around 
these sort of language recordings. What do you see as the relationship between language and music? Oh, I don't know if I've really thought about it in such discrete terms. I mean, I, I think that, hmm, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I feel like the idea of vocabulary, the idea of, of breaking things down to fundamental building blocks. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day about how one of the best ways to approach some sort of intercultural or cross-cultural collaboration is to is to break things break concepts down to really small building blocks and that way you can actually kind of there are more points of relation and then you can actually build you know new language or you can build a collaborative language um and that's something you know that i firmly believe you know i think I think, you know, my son is nine and a half and we're just having these conversations about roots of words. And if you know this word, you actually know 10 other words. And if you know what this word in Latin means, you actually know a hundred other words. And, you know, and looking at music in kind of a similar way that, you know, this little three or four note grouping actually, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's this tonality, but it can be this tonality, but it can also be this Indian Raga, and it can also be this Iraqi Maqam. And it's kind of seeing things from that perspective, instead of trying to take on, you know, the kind of larger concept of like, ah, Indian music, Iraqi music, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's like this right. huge ball that, of that you're trying to swallow at once. So I think that's kind of the way I, I, I've thought about language. And then, you know, when we talk about Charlie Parker, we're always talking about vocabulary. We talk about, you know, bebop vocabulary. And that's kind of a funny thing because when we talk about bebop vocabulary in, in education circles, it's usually this very kind of codified thing of that implies a sort of regurgitation. Mm -hmm. So again, we get to that place of like, well, so when does regurgitation turn into spontaneity and how can we, you know, encourage that? So those are some of the parallels I think about with be, between music and language. I mean, I think there are other things that I've thought about too, but I, I always gravitate towards players that have a sort of, I mean, we could describe it as kind of a looseness, but it's more that like, it's almost like they're speaking, the, the way they play has a sort of vernacular to it that's, that, that, that uh, encourages familiarity. Because I mean, when you really think about it, I mean, Bird and Coltrane. I mean, if if you're trying to understand what they're playing, I mean, it's pretty complicated stuff. You yeah, know? Yeah. It's, it's, and but a, a musician that can somehow play that, but but create that sort of um, that fam that that familiar energy that leads the listener to to enjoy enjoy instead of. Um, try to understand but still feel like a sense of communication i mean i think those those are lofty things to to strive towards you know right i think yeah. michael brecker was like that too michael brecker plays some really really crazy crazy stuff yeah. Yeah, if you dissect sure. it but but he's doing it with like this almost kind of r&b saxophone sound you know so mm -hmm. already like it's sonically familiar so he can almost play anything he wants you know those right. are things that really fascinate me and i think uh, actors and, and, and comedians and great public speakers, they, they all kind of embody that. I mean, I think I think JFK and Obama had a way of speaking that, that, that always kind of, even if they were talking about the worst things, that somehow you felt okay. Like, mm -hmm. there was like some sort of hope and, and, and humanity, you know? Right. 
I know that Miles Davis had said one of his inspirations for phrasing was actually Orson Welles, you know, the cadence of his voice and in a sort of definitive way of saying something, even if the content isn't um, anything outstanding, you believe it, right? Yeah, that's really cool. I never heard that. I'm going yeah. to think about that one. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I think these days with jazz education, there's so many super talented players with chops, but there's also a lot of players who sound exactly the same. And the other thing is, you know, the way music is recorded these days, there's a lot of solos that are great, but they just sound too perfect. And a lot of the trumpet heroes that I had were, you know, like Lee Morgan, Freddie Hubbard. And what I admired about their playing was the chances they took. You know, they would get themselves into almost an impossible spot <laughs> over the harmonies or with some phrase that now needed to be answered or concluded. And they would find some way out of it. And you felt like you were on an adventure uh, with them. And I think I hear that in your playing a lot, too, uh, sort of setting up musical problems and things that stack and then need to go in a certain direction. And it always feels uh, dangerous and exciting. What do you feel about, you know, sort of solo structures in jazz today and then in your own sort of playing? Well, in my own playing, I've, I've always enjoyed getting lost and trying to find my way back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, know? I love that. And if you're playing with people that you trust, it's, you know, they'll, they'll hopefully help you find your way back. You know, not <laughs> always, but the, yeah, I mean, taking chances is, is, I mean, that's like half the fun, you know, right. seeing where you end up and, and seeing if you can find your way out and uh, find your way back, whatever it is. But your point about jazz education is, is something that that my colleagues and I talk about a lot because, you know, when I was coming out of high school in 88, I think there were maybe 10 colleges and universities that had a jazz program mm -hmm. that maybe even had a jazz degree. And, and now everyone has one, you know, you right. can... You can get a jazz studies degree down the literally down the street here in Montclair, New Jersey. <laughs> get what, you know? So, so that has uh, so what has that done? Well, I think initially there's uh, there there's some initial risk taking that doesn't have have to take place. Like when I went to North Te University of North Texas and when I went to Berkeley, there were people from all over the country there, and and the stakes were high. They were just like you know they they were they had to be committed and they they were there to work their butts off, you know. And there's something about it being a little easy, the accessibility being more prevalent has, has already kind of removed some of that risk taking. So I think, you know, everyone should have opportunities to do everything. I mean, it sounds really weird for me to say, you know, too many opportunities is ruining, ruining <laughs> the music. But but there is there is something to that. I think that that's worth considering, you know, and then there are more problems. So then you also have, folks teaching at these schools that have gone straight through and gotten their bachelor's and master's and doctorate and they've never really gotten gone out there and played and and lived this music but but they have these degrees that actually give them a better chance of getting a gig teaching at these schools th than the person who did go out and play for right. 20 years and only has a bachelor's degree so you know that's kind of a you know a major contradiction so what happens? So the music gets watered down and it becomes kind of a, a, a series of things that are learned and, 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 and uh, stitched together. So this idea of spontaneity, these, this idea of developing a unique voice, you know, those things have gotten lost in, in music education. I mean, I think, you know, where I am at Princeton, it, it, 
it's just such a different environment. We're not a conservatory, you know, we're, we have very few music majors. And so we can have these larger conversations about, you know, uniqueness and, and how this music fits into the rest of the world. And, and what is it that we're actually trying to achieve beyond being able to just play over this chord progression in as perfect a way as possible? You know, that's just kind of missing the point. So, yeah, jazz education is, you know, a very, very funny thing. It, it's gotten it's it's actually pushed a, a lot of musicians far from i think the original spirit and, and intent of of this music right and in you know those old great recordings uh, especially when you get reissues you would get a number of alternate takes and you can compare them and, and try to see well why did they choose this one well maybe the solo's a little better here but those recordings went out with a lot of mistakes and that's part of the beauty of course, these days, if you flub your solo, you could just overdub and, you know, make a more perfect solo in the studio. Yeah, you can keep punching in and, yeah. you know, yeah, definitely. And um, you hear things that are almost too perfect. And I think part of jazz, like you say, is getting yourself in a dangerous corner and seeing how you get out of it. That's a lot of the fun for me as a listener. Right. It's energy, it's spontaneity, that yeah. sort of thing. Well, there's this album that really made me think about a lot of these things called I think it's called Blowing Session. It's a it's like a recorded jam session of, of Coltrane and Johnny Griffin and, and Hank Mobley, I think. Oh right, with, I know that one. Yes. With uh, a great rhythm section that I can't remember. And just hearing those guys in this in the same room in this very informal context and th I mean three players who could couldn't be any more different than each other. And and you, you there's just there's something very special about about that, about hearing three colleagues that have radically different approaches to the same music, but they are playing the same music. You know, they're playing, they're in the in the tradition of, of this thing that we call jazz. And I guess that just had a big impression on me. Not, not so much what they played. Obviously, they played great on that record, but but just that sort of occurrence, you know, that's that's what that's what it should feel like when we get together with I've, if I'm going to get together with three other alto players, you know, I would like to think that we all sound really, really different. And that shouldn't be hard to find. But it, I think it, it does get hard to find. There is this kind of sameness and people coming from all coming from the same foundation. Right. So I guess that leads us to uh, what's next for you. Uh, what's uh, <laughs> what's coming up on the horizon that you know of, and what do you want to do in in future projects uh, or people you want to work with, kinds of music you want to try next? Well, I have a a few things going. Um, well, the trio has a few more shows this fall, and and I think I would just like for the the trio to be kind of a constant of something that I kind of keeps going regardless of whatever projects I'm I'm working on and. I think that's going to make the most sense for me going forward. I'm recording a new album in a few weeks. Uh, it's a sort of retrospective. Um, you know, when you look at my discography, I mean, you've talked about a few different projects. You know, I've, I've written this music. It's a body of work. It's recorded. Hopefully we go play a bunch of gigs. And then I move on to the next thing, and, and that music doesn't get played anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, the music from Mother Tongue hasn't been played since, you know, 2005, and for example. So I really want, and it was supposed to be in line with my 50th birthday, but my 50th was, was in the middle of COVID. But I wanted to go back and, and revisit some of my favorite compositions and, and re-record them with, with a couple of different bands. So there's going to be a band that's a bit more electric with uh, David Gilmore and Reza Bassi, great uh, electric bass player, and Rich Brown and Rudy Royston. That's, and uh, 
a wonderful young pianist named Alexis Lombre. So that's going to be one session that's a little more electric. And then the acoustic session is uh, Adam O'Farrell is going to be on some of it. A really great young vocalist named Anson Jones and a tenor player you may have heard of named Nicole Glover, who's very, oh, sure. very good. Yeah, we've talked about her releases. Yeah, so and Nicole's going to be on there, and that's with Dan Weiss on drums and Francois mm-hmm. Moutin on bass and Matt Mitchell on piano. So it's kind of a way of assembling, you know, my favorite players that I've that I've played with, and some of my favorite young players, and and some of my favorite tunes, you know, that I've written. Right. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know how that's coming out yet, but we're definitely recording. Uh, we have a date at the end of the month and a date at the beginning of September. I also have a collaboration with a rapper and a, and a visual artist who does something. I guess he's an animator officially, but it, it's something more akin to Zoetrope, which if you know mm-hmm. Zoetrope was like yeah. predates film. So we're working on a project that's kind of um, a tribute to Mahatma Gandhi, but also kind of showcasing his influence as you know a proponent of nonviolent protests. So... For example, there's there's a movement about Mandela. There's a movement of, about John Lewis. Cesar Chavez is going to be one. There's there's a movement about the Tiananmen Square uprising. Uh, so that's a really really cool project. That's something that's me and lots of electronics and this rapper poet and and uh, this animator. So. That's a project that has moved at snail's pace, but I'm hoping that we can maybe wrap it up at the at the end of the year and, and get that out there. So that's something that would be more in like performing arts centers and not so much like album oriented right. or club oriented. So those are the things I'm thinking about right now. It's been interesting for me to just hang out and play standards and play music that's been written by other people. Like I'd never really done that before. So it's been really fun to focus on that for two years. But but now I feel like I'm really ready to write some music again. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned earlier um, that a lot of jazz is going in the in an electronic direction. Do you see yourself like leading a project that uh, ever does an electronic uh Well, uh, I mean, it depends on to what degree electronic, but, but mm. there's an album of mine that actually kind of flew under the radar called Samdi oh. um, that came out in 2011. It was my first album for ACT, but that's... That's very much an electronic, electric oh, record. I'm playing with a bunch of effects and doing some some programming and some software programming, and yeah, somehow something about that album. It just it it didn't. A lot of people don't know about it, but it's right. it's one of my favorites, and we're actually oh, going to re-record okay. some music from that. So oh, cool! It was kind of like the jazz rock fusion band I'd always wanted to have since <laughs> right. I, you know I was in junior right. high. So, do you see yourself doing something like that again then, or? Well, I think that the half of that album that I'm recording upcoming is is going to be something like that. But okay. yeah, I think so. I, I would like to jump back into that. It's funny. It's like electronics is, is almost like learning another instrument. And I feel right. like when I'm deep in it, I'm really feeling it and really hearing it. But when I get away from it for a while, it's... You know, it's like not practicing the trumpet. You know, I feel <laughs> rusty. Like my my electronics embouchure is shot. You know, right. it takes a while to to, to find it again. But uh, but I look forward to that. And you know, there's so many great electronic musicians. Electronic music is very big at Princeton. Um, it's been hmm. kind of in the musical DNA of 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 the institution for 
for many years. So I feel like I can get a lot of help and a lot of assistance and a lot of cool ideas and inspiration there. So that's been really great. I certainly enjoy your acoustic work a lot. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing that as well. I have to go back and hear that electronic album now. Yeah, you got to try to find it. It's called Samdhi. S A M D H I. Okay. It's definitely streaming. Okay. Cool. Yeah, well, I guess that's Check how that we find it. Yeah. All right. Well, there you have it, adult music audience. Anyone who, <laughs> by car, train, plane, horse, whatever you got, can get down to a Smoke Jazz Club August 25th to 28th to hear our Rudresh's trio. It's going to be exciting. Charlie Parker inspired program with uh, sounds like a lot of other uh, added elements and uh, maybe the capes. You get to see <laughs> the capes. Maybe the capes. Yeah, for yeah. sure. You know, that'd be great. Uh, so check that out. <laughs> And uh, just thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks a yeah, lot. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great, really to, appreciate great it. to talk to you about lots of different things. It was really, you know, very fun for me. Thanks a yeah, lot. It was really interesting for us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks for those uh, tips on what you've got coming up. We'll definitely keep our eye out for that. and Our uh, ear out, yeah. Yeah, ear out. And uh, <laughs> when they come out, we'll definitely get them in an episode, listen to them, and uh, break them down for listeners. Uh, great, so thank you. Best of luck at uh, the Smoke Jazz Club debut. I hope you and the audience have a great time. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.